Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. My name is Sylvan and I will be your host. Today we're in Zurich and talk to Get Your Guide co-founder Pascal Matisse. We have taken up your questions about early stage fundraising via Instagram and Facebook and are now putting this into our very first Q&A session. The result is a short and clear pointers that you can apply directly to your business. We hope you'll like this new format and make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram to submit your questions for the next Q&A sessions and also to decide on the topics that we cover next. Before we get started with the episode, I would like to introduce you to SBB Startup. If you think that your company is a good fit for the Swiss Railways, get in touch with them or learn more about their startup programs at sbbstartup.com. Pascal, well, welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's great to have you here today for our very first Q&A session. We, we talk about fundraising, especially for early stage startups and seed financing rounds. And we ask our community about their questions. And the first one that they asked is from Cedric Waldburger. And he asked, what are some questions that every founder should ask themselves before actually fundraising? First, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, good question. Uh, that's always something we ask our founders in our portfolio as well. And uh, the most important thing, I think, is uh, the, the size of the round. Uh, how much money do I need and how you find out how much money you need is uh, by thinking about what next steps do you want to achieve with this money. Do you have a good example for uh, a good next step or milestone? Uh, that you want I achieve? have an example of a not so good next step. This is uh, developing the product. We don't like this as investors. Why not? So, uh, yeah, because you want to invest in something which already is there and which works. So if they say that the 80% of the money is going into the further development of the product, and then they will achieve a product uh, market fit. That's not so good for us. So we want to see every, every money, every dollar goes into the, into the sales side. So selling this awesome product, that's better, better right. use of money. But I can imagine this is also a bit of a, a dilemma because the founders, they need some time and probably also some money to develop something. But at the same time, you also expect something that's already in the market and can generate some revenue as an investor. So. That's the tricky part. As a founder, you have to uh, further develop the product with a little bit of the money, achieve a, a certain milestone so that the product is ready or, or ready for a certain group of customers and then go out, uh, gain some market traction. And with this market traction, that you go back to your investors and ask for more money. This is a little bit the, the not so easy circle or <laughs> balance act. Uh, another important uh, factor I would look at is who should be your investor. So uh, choose your investor wisely um, about like, like apart from the money, what can your in investor bring you in terms of network, know-how, etc. So don't underestimate this fact. So in, especially in Switzerland, there is a lot of money around mm -hmm. and the most of founders find the money somewhere, but I would do a short list with the ideal uh, people uh, coming in as investors and then uh, really look for their network and their, and their know-how. In that regard, people often talk about smart money, but how do you actually determine what smart means for your business? So what I always uh, tell my companies is that they should 
just look at the next phase. A phase in our world is two years, more or less. And for this phase, uh, we think about like what crucial skill or network part do we miss? And this is how we then choose the investor. Do you have an example for an early stage startup, how that could look like in, in practice? Yeah, for instance, they want to sell to, to big corporates in a certain field. Then it's very logical that you search for executives or ex-executives of these companies or salespeople who have done uh, negotiations with these big companies. And then you go for these. Yeah, sounds like a good plan. Sounds very easy. But hard to do in, in theory, practice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the next question um, concerns timing and was, uh, is coming from Tim Michaelis. He uh, sent it in through our website. And he asked, when is the ideal time to find investors beyond your friends, family, and fools in regards of being able to move forward quickly, but also not giving up too many shares. It's still a bit related to the first question, but I think um, in terms of timing, this is a really big time question coming from Swiss entrepreneurs. No, timing is uh, extremely difficult, but uh, crucial. So we always try to raise for uh, 18 months, one and a half years. Um, and then it's all about these milestones. This is a little bit uh, how I look at it. I always try to achieve a certain milestone, which makes it obvious that the company now is, uh, has gained in valuation. That's always a good time then to go to the investors. Right. But it's really tough. It's never a good time to fundraise. You always think that, nah, just to finish this next feature, get a little bit of more market traction, and then finally uh, you're worth... Then also another question uh, that, that's coming from Jason Duran. Uh, he sent it in through Instagram. He asked, after how much revenue did you start seeking for investors? So, I think this is very case-specific, I can imagine. Absolutely. Uh, I can just tell you as we, how we did it at Get Your Guide. So there we did uh, a little bit of money we took from our parents, since we didn't have any, and uh, some from family and fools. And, and then as soon as we had a little bit of uh, revenue, we already started to, to look for external money. But since it was a B2C case, uh, we needed a lot of money to, do, to, to promote it, to do marketing. Absolutely. As you mentioned, it's extremely dependent on, on the business case. So if you do uh, software or if you do hardware, B2B, B2C makes a hell of a difference. And also in, in terms of revenue, is there any amount that you say, hey, before you raise your first round beyond the family, friends and fools, is there any good revenue number uh, that you say, okay, this range would be appropriate for going out and talking to investors? Not really. It's always a mix between traction and uh, if, if it's not revenue, then maybe you have a growing user base, right. things like that. But uh, the people are uh, psychological. So uh, whenever you need, you reach a, a new number, a number of digits, so half a million, it's not a new number, but a million, right. 10 million, these are these big steps. So, uh, yeah, like in Switzerland, I see that investors often uh, look uh, before 1 million revenue and after 1 million. For okay. So before 1 million would then be a good timing for your first seed investment, probably. No, after. After, <laughs> okay. Milestone. If Always if you get to a certain milestone, yeah. then you shop around with this milestone. Right. So if you crack the 1 million, then you can say, hey, you're already doing 1, 1 million in revenue. What do you want? Yeah. So basically, before 1 million, you do bootstrapping or you ask family, friends and fools if possible. Then as soon as you hit the 1 million, then you go for uh, other investors like business angels or maybe also first VC contacts. I think it's really hard to only look at revenue. I would uh, uh, really go step by step. Uh, the best to show to an investor is EBITDA. 
if you're profitable, everybody wants to give you money, which is stupid in a way. <laughs> so if you, then the next best uh, proxy is revenue. So then we can go for these steps. 500K is better than 100K. And you sure. just take as much as you, as you can. If you don't have revenue uh, growing, then you search for another KPI where you strive. Uh, if you have the, these growing users or you just finished this awesome pro product, it's just the harder sale because uh, the investor is always uh, money driven. So EBITDA revenue, he understands or she understands very easily. If it goes into the product or traction and marketing stuff, most of them uh, will have a bit more fear. Uh, then you probably also end up giving up more shares. No. And this is something, maybe you have some questions also about this, but this is important not to give away too many shares in one round. Absolutely. I think this is closely linked to the valuation that you get. Um, Tim Mikhail is also asked, how can I estimate how much my startup is worth before starting the first financing round? It's easy. You take a dime and then you know, <laughs> no, it's really hard. And all the founders ask me, so what's a fair valuation? And I have a, a little bit uh, special uh, rule on how I do it. So I go back to and ask the founder, how much money do you need for these next one and a half, two years? And depending on, on the amount he or she wants to raise, I then say, okay, we give away maybe 20% of the company, and then you end up at a certain valuation. And we just figured out that 20%, 20 to 25% is a healthy round, uh, like shares to give away. So we aim for this stake as investors, and uh, that this gives you a rough idea where the, where the valuation can be. What is not a good idea is to look to the US, to the UK, to Berlin, and ask for a similar uh, startup saying, hey, they raised at this valuation, but you'd never know the terms, etc. So it's really not a good idea to just uh, compare to other companies in right. my eyes. And have you also noticed any trends in terms of rising valuations here in Switzerland too, as they probably did in, in the US? Or is that a trend that is not in effect in Switzerland? Yeah, it's uh, going up. So they all, all the founders, they read these uh, blogs from the US <laughs> and there are these fancy valuations. Obviously, they only talk about the top percent of the biggest rounds. So our Swiss founders, well, this is also good. They are proud and they think, ah, my company is already... 20 million or whatever, but uh, it, it's uh, dangerous. I would even uh, say sometimes it's better to raise at a lower valuation because you already have to think about the next round. And the investors and also you as a founder, you want to have uh, a next round which is much higher than the last one. And what you want totally to avoid is a down round because then it's really hard to convince new investors. And what would you do in such a specific case if you actually get a, a down round for your company? Uh, then you need uh, really good negotiation skills and uh, showing your investors that uh, it's just a phase and it's a turnaround situation and then they can come into such a good company for a very decent price and it will rebound and then you will have this very good upside in the next round then. but it takes a lot of negotiation to uh, deal with the down round. The next part that I would like to focus on with the user questions is basically the fundraising process. Um, Helova Helena asked, how can you get your foot in the door with a potential investor and what's the approach there? Basically, how do you get in touch with investors? Yeah, ideally you have a rich uncle or aunt. Most of <laughs> us don't. <laughs> I don't. Uh, then you just, uh, like angel networks is a good idea. Uh, they're, they're like group of people 
who want to invest in startups. So, Is there any uh, network that you could recommend in particular? Yeah, sure. All these uh, business angels, Switzerland, uh, SIGTIC uh, for more uh, technical cases, mm -hmm. uh, B2B in, in, in St. Gallen. All of these, I would try to uh, get a, a slot to, to have a speech in front of a big audience. And then if you're lucky, some of them will uh, reach out to you and want to invest. And you can also go for VC money, but then most often you need a bit of, uh, a bit, to be a bit further with your company. Right. What I also do is uh, cold calling. I would go, especially as we discussed a little bit earlier on, I would uh, go for this skill set. What exactly do you need for a certain phase? Mm -hmm. And then go through LinkedIn or, or other platforms. Uh, look for, this, uh, for these people who have this expertise in a certain area. And I would just try to get the, the email or phone number and call them up. And you would be surprised how many people uh, often they, are in, they have, are in the 50s or 60s. And most often, yeah, they don't have boring lives, but, but they like to talk to, to founders, and, and in, especially in their area. And they, they like to share their know-how. And if you're lucky, you even get an investor. Or they know somebody who could invest in such a case. So I would... Uh, hope that the Swiss founders uh, lose the fear of, of uh, cold contacting. I mean, I, I think this is something that rarely gets done in Switzerland, this approach rarely. of finding investors. Yeah. What do you then actually tell them? I mean, for these like professionals with a close link to your company or to your professional area, you don't just go in there and say, hey, do you want to invest in my company? Very good. No. You what do you tell them? How do you approach them? Yeah, no. You go there and say, hey, uh, let's call him Ben. Uh, dear Ben, I found your profile and it's astonishing. You would be the perfect match to share some know-how. I want to learn from you. And then you are in. This is exactly the foot in the door. And then obviously Ben, some at a certain uh, stage, ho hopefully uh, he understands that this is a great case, great founder, and he starts to invest. This is actually how I became a business angel. I didn't plan so, but the young founders came to me, asked for my advice, as I just mentioned, and then... Yeah, if, if, if I'm smart, I invest in this case because if I coach them a little bit, then uh, my investment uh, gives a good return. And I think this is also has a very nice psychological sort of part of it because you ask them for input and you sort of put them as experts and then they want, really want to help you, right? Through 30 years, I gained this experience about a certain area. And now finally there is somebody who wants to disrupt this industry or comes with a new idea. And he asked for my, my know-how about this space. It's, uh, right. That's why it's actually very easy. But the Swiss founders don't do it enough, I think. Are they just afraid or what's the reason for that from your perspective? It's not so nice. It's hard. It takes a lot of energy. Uh, cold calling is just not fun. I had to do a lot. Uh, forget your guide. I all the suppliers uh, to call them up and bring them on a platform. It's sure. just not nice. You have to explain who you are why the internet is ready for you <laughs> to sell tours attractions. It's, it's, uh, it's just tough, yeah. Um, Cedric Waldburger also asked, if you don't have a network in Switzerland yet, if, is there anything that you would do differently in terms of that approach? Or would that approach also work for someone who doesn't really have any network in Switzerland? It's actually exactly for, for Cedric's question. So if you don't have a network, then I would do it with the, with the Business Angel Clubs. Right. Uh, the cold calling, I would always do because probably you end up with the better match uh, if you do the cold calling part. Mm -hmm. Because it, at the Business Angel uh, Networks, obviously the ones in your space would probably uh, be more likely to, to end up uh, being your investor, but you're not sure. Right. 
Um, so I would really in, in, encourage the Swiss founders to do the, the cold calling part. I think this is a very good and strong message to take away. The next question comes from Maxim. He asks, how do I best present my business idea or my business plan? I think this can be closely linked to your presentation at a business angel network. What should you pay attention to right there? How do you present? Yeah, what I uh, learned is that the, the, they always prepare their presentation, their pitch deck really nice. And now that's the problem because most often uh, your dream investor is not uh, giving you one hour in his office and you can present. Yeah. Most likely you will end up uh, at a very noisy event and you have exactly 30 seconds uh, to tell your great business idea. Uh, so you have to really uh, do the, the oral pitch a lot and train this and have this, this uh, catchphrase so that uh, most investors uh, are interested in your case. If you only have 30 seconds, also if there is an event party, a very loud music and you still... Uh, can convince a person to give you more time to then listen closely. Sure. So I've really worked on this oral pitch, not only on the pitch presentation. I, d I know this is really hard, but maybe spontaneously you have a good pitch in mind that was delivered to you or that you did with uh, Get Your Guide. What is like a good oral pitch? So that's now the difficult part because depending on the investor, mm -hmm. you don't know what resonates with them. So depending on the investor, you have to, with, with almost no data, you have to figure out what kind of person is sitting next to me, what could be a catchy, a catchy phrase. So sometimes I said, uh, uh, we are already working with TripAdvisor, another big company, or, uh, or somebody crazy cool is invested into our company, or like name dropping, yes. this kind of stuff. But you have to do, try certain of these uh, because you don't know which one will resonate. And this is a skill you have to train. And uh, yeah, for the first 10 times you will fail, but then suddenly you will become better also reading the other person and, and, and trying with the right catchphrase first. And then once you successfully pitched it, you ask for a follow-up meeting or a phone call. What happens exactly. then? So the, 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 the only goal of this uh, oral pitch is to get more time and in a not noisy space where you can then present your pixel-perfect presentation and you have one hour to convince uh, the, the investor and there I think energy level is something I would like to, to have so uh, I want to feel the passion and the energy of, of the founder team yep. to, to being able to, to bring this great company uh, alive and you, you mentioned the presentation uh, what should be in there what do you present I mean there are good templates in the, in the internet but maybe you have a, a perfect structure that you think is not is so much I just want to have it complete so I want to have the team uh, the problem they solve, the solution, uh, the, what's the offering? So, like, uh, what, what, uh, how many, how, how much money they need, what they, what, what do they do with it? So, for Next me, milestone. it's standard. But sometimes, <laughs> is there is one slide missing, and then I ask them, hey, can you give me a little bit more background about uh, your traction in the market or things like that? And then, usually after such a presentation, there's also a discussion round. Um, how does that work? Can you also walk us through uh, the next step after the presentation? Depends a lot on the investor. If you're more professional, then you enter due diligence. So they wanna, they send you a, 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 a Q&A with uh, 30 to 1,000 questions, <laughs> <laughs> depending on the investor. Uh, if it's uh, more private or business angels, they would just uh, uh, dig deeper in, in certain certain uh, areas i guess mm -hmm. uh, doing it via phone call what we like to do is to visit the the, the founders 
I, per I always want to meet the entire founder team and maybe also key people. Uh, yeah. We like to visit the teams in their offices and uh, get, a get a little bit of the feel of the, yes. of the culture. What do you do if, the, if they are so early that they don't even have an office yet? Um, doesn't matter. Then we go to a living room or, or where they live. Or but just in their personal setting, that's basically where you want to meet, right? Yeah, I, I, I just uh, look at small details, how they work. Are they very structured? Uh, is there labels on the drawers or, like, or is this t total chaos? Both can work, but I just want to get a feel at how they, how they operate. And then after you had the Q&A session or the follow-up questions, what happens then at a certain point? Yeah. You probably also negotiate, right? Well, yep. That's, uh, and don't do this uh, too early. Often uh, founders try to already negotiate valuations, etc. Mm -hmm. But normally uh, as a founder, you should just uh, convince uh, the, the business angel or investor with as many positive uh, phrases as possible. So uh, you, you highlight what is so cool about your company. Mm -hmm. And in the end, when the, the investor is really, really tempted, then you start a little bit to go into term sheet. And, and uh, a good way is to, for the founder is to deliver the term sheet and not to wait for a term sheet. Because obviously, uh, if you as a founder start with a term sheet, it's more founder friendly than uh, if the investor does the first uh, draw. Very smart advice, I would say. Do you think that founders need any, any template for that or should they go to a legal uh, advisor or how should they actually create the term sheet? What's your best practice there? I would always go to a lawyer and I would go to a lawyer who really worked with startups because every lawyer would tell you startups. I've done many, but you have to work with a lawyer who did growth startups and did this many times. Otherwise, you, you end up in a mess. I saw that several times. So I would go to, to a law, law firm. It's, it's well worth to spend up to 5,000 uh, francs uh, for a Series A, I would say. Is there any good law firm that you could recommend here in Switzerland? Yeah, in Zurich there are a couple, but uh, it's easy to find out. Okay. I would just go and look for the, the companies who raised money. Sure. And most often you find uh, whom they worked with. Case studies or anything, yeah, exactly. And then after the term sheet, what happens then? The term sheet is basically also, you know, sort of like a letter of intent, right? Uh, but you haven't actually purchased or signed any shares yet. So how do you then proceed after that? Yeah. And I just spoke to a lawyer and he said he saw many, many deals. He said he never saw a big change from the non-binding term sheet to the actual shareholders agreement. So uh, uh, you never should celebrate before you have the money on the, on the account, obviously. But if you negotiated the term sheet, mm -hmm. then most likely uh, you, you end up with a decent shareholders agreement also. Yeah, then the lawyers draft the shareholders agreement and then you sign it, they wire the money and then you go for celebration. Then you go to work. <laughs> <laughs> then you go to work. <laughs> and then also Cedric Waldburger asked, what are the key terms on a term sheet? First of all, what key terms are there that you should look out for? And second, what do they actually mean so that you also get the the, the meaning or the purpose of, of these terms. Yeah, as mentioned, I would really start with the, with the standard template of one of, these, of one of these beautiful law firms, as we just discussed. Then uh, one of the caveats is uh, liquidation preference, for instance. There, I personally, I think it's okay. Uh, also as a founder, I always thought if somebody gives me a million and I mess up or uh, don't, doesn't work so well, I would give it this million back and the rest is split between all of us. I think it's so, so, sort of fair. What I would not accept is uh, if, the, if uh, liquidation preference 
is uh, more than one multiple. So uh, one million in, one million back is okay. One million in, first you give me two million back, I would never accept. This is something I don't like, then tag along, drag along, but this is all standard. Uh, board matters maybe, so who, who is in the board? Uh, normally the, the lead investor or the one with the biggest ticket wants to have a board seat. Often you, you want this. If you did the cold calling well, if you have this per perfect person uh, as a new investor, then you want him or her in the board. Quick question there. Usually this is linked to the person with the highest shares or the, the highest investment amount. But as you said, it could also be probably the, the person that adds smart money and doesn't necessarily have to be the, the largest shareholder. Absolutely. Who would you choose then? Yeah, always the smartest person and not only, well, smartest, uh, the, with the, with the know-how for this next phase. Mm -hmm. But one important topic is, uh, does this person have time? So I have seen really cool people, uh, CEOs of big companies, they don't have time. They don't even show up for the board meeting. Sure. So then that's not a good fit. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would not go for the largest ticket. Most often the, the, the one with the largest ticket is also totally fine if somebody else who really can work in this next phase or help in this next phase mm -hmm. uh, is in the board. Uh, most often they accept it or, in, or foster it even. Right. And other terms that you should look out for as a founder? Uh, board matters, I always think, so we discussed board and then there is often a, a section like uh, what uh, do you have to discuss or ask all the shareholders, what can be, uh, what do you have to ask your board and uh, which decisions can the management take and there sometimes I see uh, if, you, if you have to, for every spending of 5,000k, if you always have to ask your shareholders or your board, mm -hmm. it's just tedious. So these, these board matters I would have a look, close look, like which kind of actions uh, do you have to vote in the board? Uh, what can the management do by themselves? Absolutely. And also one thing that you usually put into these shareholder agreements are uh, bad and good lever clauses investing for the founders. Yeah. What is your best practice there? So investing uh, for the founders is key. At Get Your Guide, we were extremely strict. If you would leave within the first three years, uh, we would have to hand the shares back. The all of it all of it wow. we just were extremely strict we had the idea that only if we work for the company uh, then we can add value to the company sure. so yeah that was a little bit our understanding uh, obviously if, if like if the founder works for three four five years for a company he or she should take some some shares uh, with him or her but uh, investors don't like uh, founder shares lying around not working for the company so uh, you also send a message. Mm -hmm. So that's why I always think if a founder leaves the company, uh, he or she should give back uh, a big chunk of the, of the shares. Would you recommend to do the three-year period? Because what is more common is usually that you have a one-year cliff and after that, your shares start vesting on a monthly or annual basis, basically. Yeah, for, for employees, this is perfect. Uh, what you will learn as a founder in every new round, the new investor says, ah, good vesting scheme. Uh, I have here the new vesting scheme. So uh, you will be vesting and vesting and revesting right. all the time. So uh, whatever you discuss and, and it's good for a certain round, uh, yeah, you have to negotiate this again one and a half years later when you do the next round. And then you probably end up at the three years anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so it's always prolonging. So right. uh, at Series E even, uh, the, the investor wants to have them motivated and, and staying in the company. So there will be a vesting again. Obviously not for the total amount, 
but there will be always a vesting. Mm -hmm. One question that came from Eingefleischt through Instagram was, how do you cope with uncertainty? Because this is a constant sort of part of the whole fundraising process from the investor's perspective, but also from the founder's perspective, right? So are there any good recommendations from your side, how you can deal with this uncertainty? Yeah, for me, this is the fun part of the whole thing. <laughs> That's exactly why I like doing it, because it's not so easy. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you just have to take a decision out of your stomach and uh, trust the people or, or whatever. Right. If you can't deal with uncertainty, then you're not a startup investor. Then I just wouldn't do it. You, you, you can't sleep anymore. Yeah. Right. And from a founder's perspective? Uh, same thing. It's, uh, it's really hard. If you can't deal with uncertainty, it's probably not a good idea to, to run a company yeah. because it's, uh, it's always tough. You have always more problems than solutions. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you can't deal with it, then maybe it's a good advice to join a company which is already a bit bigger. Now, assume you have closed your uh, funding round, you successfully raised the funds. And now you also sort of have investors on board and you collaborate or work with them. How does this working relationship look like with your investors? I know there are like reportings that you usually send out, but maybe you can also give us a bit more insights here what a good founder and investor working relationship looks like beyond the, the smart money uh, approach that you already mentioned. Yeah, yeah it's uh, depending on, on how, how much these investors want to work with the company. Mm -hmm. um, Obviously, if they work more, the, the better. Um, what I usually recommend is a, a monthly reporting. Mm -hmm. And based on this report, there should always be a section where you can help. So uh, if you ask, if you look for a CMO, for instance, then you put this as an as a action title for your investors saying, hey, by the way, we are looking for this and this profile. If you happen to know anybody, reach out to us. Mm -hmm. So these are... yeah ideas on how to how to how to get them motivated to work yes. because as an investor you only start working if 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 something happens or if the founders calls you up so i would do the the, the monthly reporting mm -hmm. so they are a little bit aware of what's going on and then it's easier to ask them for help mm -hmm. and the, if you if you happen to have a good investor on on the board then you you call them up whenever there is something something uh, happening or just a second opinion so I like this the most. If the, the CEOs just call me up saying, hey, this happened to, to this employee, is it okay if I fire him? But then we discuss shortly and most often it's okay to fire him. But this would only happen if you, you're sitting on the board, right? Or also if you're just a regular investor. It doesn't have to. You, you can choose whomever. Uh, obviously, in, in the whole uh, regulatory section of your company, uh, the, the board has more information rights than others, so you have to be a little bit careful. Mm -hmm. Most often, uh, this person would sit in the board. And the board meetings, how often would you recommend to have them? Once a month, once every quarter, once a year? What is the best practice from your perspective there? Yeah, I would do once, once a quarter, maybe one extra for budgeting, so four to five. Okay. Yeah, if, it, if it's more, then, then it's uh, extremely... A lot of work yeah. for, for also on the investor side. Probably they are in, invested in, in different companies. Right. Then it's a lot of meetings. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, could also be result in, in sort of an overkill. Yeah. Would you also suggest to do any additional meetings with investors beyond that? Because you have the board meetings, you have the monthly reporting. Would you recommend to, for example, host, I don't know, a drinks or a dinner once a year with your investors or anything like that to establish this, this good relationship? Yeah. That's extremely uh, good, good point. 
And uh, most of the Swiss founders, especially, they don't do it well. It's a shareholders relationship. Mm-hmm. So uh, in certain cases, you invest, let's say 100K, and then one and a half years later, you get a call or an email saying, hey, uh, thank you for being our shareholder. Now we need more money. This is ridiculous. <laughs> so uh, it's very, very good to do uh, every half a year or a year uh, a get-together. Uh, if, it, uh, if there is a certain topic you want to discuss with one of the shareholders, because he or she has uh, experience, then even better to do a lunch or whatever. Keep them in the loop a little bit. So the, the, the update every month also helps, but some people don't read emails, so it's really good to, to keep them motivated, uh, tell them what, what's going on, yes. and you can avoid a lot of uh, problems when you have your general assembly, and you then tell them, hey, actually growth is not working as we expected. So if you already brief them, then you have a, a much more uh, relaxed meeting afterwards sounds great um thank you so much for all the recommendations and the tips i think they were incredibly valuable and helpful for people listening to this let's hope is there anything that you would like to add that we have not discussed yet about the fundraising at an early stage topic maybe just the fact i can't stress enough to to choose your investor wisely so it's a little bit like a marriage and you are in you can't get them out easily you it's almost impossible to get them out Mm -hmm. so uh and every shareholder can be annoying because they, 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 if they call you, most probably you, you want to answer. And if they start calling you every second day and start to micromanaging, mm-hmm. then uh, you have a problem. So if, if it's chemically not working well with a certain person, I would try not to take them in as a shareholder. Sometimes you have to right. <laughs> take the money, but uh, choose your investor wisely. Thank you so much, Pascal. It was, uh, was a pleasure having you here and I wish you all the best with Wingman. You do some really awesome stuff and I look forward to hearing all the news about your next ventures. <laughs> Thank you. That's cool. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If the content was helpful to you, we would appreciate your five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Next week, we are back in Silicon Valley and meet Marcus Ockemus. Marcus co-founded Students.ch and the Fashion Days Group. Today, he is active as an investor and lives in San Francisco. His story is not only inspiring, but also full of great learnings and stories. An episode that you definitely don't want to miss. So make sure to tune in to an all-new episode of the Swisspreneur Show next week. <laughs>